You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey everybody, it's Erin Carey and welcome back to Sparking Wholeness. Today I am sitting down with Dr. Brent Turnipseed. He is the co-founder of the Austin-based Roots Behavioral Health. Dr. Turnipseed, Roots Medical Director, is a board-certified psychiatrist with a deep interest in innovative approaches to providing behavioral health care. He is the Scientific Advisory Board for Ninian Therapeutics and previously practiced psychiatry in clinical and law enforcement settings in Texas. And did I say that right, Ninian? Is that how I pronounce that? That's right, Ninian Therapeutics. Okay, well, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. Thank you, Erin. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, I'm excited because, you know, there are a few areas that you dive into in your practice that we have not really discussed on the show before. And I hope that we we have the time to do so. But first, I really would love for you to paint a picture of what holistic psychiatry is, maybe even what it isn't and, and why we need it right now. Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I finished my psychiatry residency in 2010. So not, not that long ago, just about 10, 12 years ago. And and the way I was trained, and I, I believe the way many psychiatrists are probably still trained, is that you know we treat we treat symptoms. We you know patients come to us, um, they're experiencing suffering, they need help in some way, and most physicians and in, in medical schools in Western medicine are trained to treat symptoms, um, particularly in our specialty or in mental health, and that's 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 most likely because you know we haven't had a great evidence base for a long time on how to really treat you know, conditions that are derived from like a brain problem basically, or brain illness. Um, Cause we didn't have enough good research to indicate like what biomarkers or what lab work or what things can we actually check and you know look at that would kind of give us some pointers as to what's causing the problem or how we can help optimize a person's brain health essentially. So, you know, I, I think this, this concept or this idea of holistic psychiatry is probably somewhat in its infancy. Um, I know many people are probably familiar with uh, the Dr. Amen, who has a Dr. Amen clinic, and he's been around much longer than I have. And I think for a long time, he was promoting kind of this concept about brain, brain health and holistic, you know, treatment of mental health, but he was an outlier. And so I think he probably didn't get a lot of respect. And so fortunately, it does seem like and feel like, and of course, I'm a bit biased, but it seems like there is like a, a bit of a tide turning in this regard that people are much more, people, the public um, are much more open to like approaching treating depression, for example, from a holistic point of view. So what does that mean? Back to your, like your main question. It means kind of like doing a deep dive on all the contributing factors that kind of constitute brain health. And for us to figure out, you know, are they optimized? Is there a problem here or not? Versus just someone coming in saying, you know, I feel depressed. I have depression. Okay, well, here's the, here's the Prozac maybe go see a therapist and I'll see you in a month and hope it works out. Um, that for the most part, I mean, I'm simplifying, but that's, that's kind of how I and most of my colleagues were trained. And so like at our clinic, almost anybody that walks through the door or comes to see us virtually, um, we're going to recommend a, not, not a, an extensive, super long lab panel, but we're going to almost always start with saying you should probably get a good baseline lab panel because there's many things we can check with evidence in lab work that will give us an idea if there's some, you know, great contributing factors that we can address and treat so that even if a person needs to take Prozac, 
you know, if we optimize their B12 or folate, or if we address uh, chronic inflammation, and if we, you know, take steps to treat those problems that are evident in lab work, that long-term, they may not need to take a medication like Prozac. That's my ultimate hope for patients. Mm -hmm. That's what I train our providers to really counsel people on that. Yeah, we're probably going to prescribe medication to you, but we want to look at other things that can help you optimize your brain health. So lab work is important. Um, kind of taking a rough dietary assessment. What kind of foods are people eating? I know that's an, a topic important to you. I, I mean, I feel like it, it's kind of cliche to say, but food really is medicine, but food is also poison for people. And so is alcohol. Mm. Um, we want to look at people's you know, social connections or lack of connections and relationships. We want to know what their job or work life or educational life is like if they're in school. Um, a topic that's kind of dear to me now is we want to ask about what is their digital use like? Um, how, how many hours per day are they in front of a screen? Um, how many social media apps are they using and how long? Because, uh, you know, evidence appears like the, it's becoming clear and clear that, you know, social media doesn't really do a lot for people's health. It's, it's more detrimental for most people, especially young people. That's really concerning to me. Um, we want to look at people's sleep, what their sleep quality is like. Sleep greatly impacts brain health. Sleep is responsible for helping kind of the brain to recover from stress throughout the day. Um, those, are, I mean, I'm, I'm probably missing a few a few items, but those are the big things that stand out in my mind that we want to like take a look at and ask people about when they come and see us. Yeah, and those are such crucial. Like I think about it as a, a puzzle, right? These are all pieces that complete the puzzle to creating optimal brain health. And if one puzzle piece is out of place, or if one puzzle puzzle piece is deficient or, or whatever it is, then it does, it, it's going to make things worse. And so I so much appreciate just that looking at all of the pieces instead of the way I was treated, which was, well, here are the symptoms, here's the diagnosis. And there's just one treatment and that's it. And you're going to have to do that for the rest of your life. I was medicated for 18 years and I was told this is, this is it. That's all. Um, when in fact, there were a lot of other things that were missed along the way that were contributing to mental health dysfunction in me. And so I so appreciate, I mean, this is what you are doing is so, so important. And I want to make sure listeners catch that there are so many different things going on than just like a neurotransmitter imbalance. Right. So um, I really appreciate you sharing that. No, no, thank you. I mean, it's it's gratifying to hear this feedback because, well, I, let, let me take a step back. A lot of this is informed by feedback from my own patients in mm -hmm. my first few years of my career. You know, I'm, I remember finishing residency being like most of us that go into medicine, like we're eager to help people. We like connecting with people, helping people. And <clears throat> it was pretty apparent after two or three years working full time as a psychiatrist prescribing you know, many, many antidepressants and mood stabilizers, uh, et cetera, that, um, wow, I realized our medications have many limitations. Um, people are not happy taking them for the most part. Some don't mind, but many people do. Um, they can lead to weight gain, sexual dysfunction, all these side effects. And that's okay if they're short-term and they're really giving a person you know, a net benefit but many people don't get a net benefit and they often get a greater side effect burden than any positive benefit they're getting from their medicine or medicines they're taking. And that's the other thing. Many people are often experiencing polypharmacy. So, you know, multiple mm. medications, 
Um, and so, you know, getting this feedback from my own patients, I realized there's got to be a better way. And I started, you know, anything I could read or find at conferences or in any of you know, our psychiatric literature publications that kind of got at these root causes of what is leading to, you know, poor brain health or brain dysfunction, you know, always got me excited. And I always wanted to chase down that hole and understand it more. And then gradually, step by step, all the things I mentioned to you about what constitutes holistic psychiatry, you know, I gradually added them to like my treatment algorithms and how we, you know, address and address these problems when, when patients come to see us for help. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Now you mentioned something that I really think is important to touch on. And that is just this digital use and the, the apps that we use and social media. And I will say, I'm noticing there's an increase in, um, adult diagnosed ADHD being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. And I have a personal theory. <laughs> if my husband were here, he would laugh because I have a whole lot of theories on a whole lot of things. Um, not backed by data, just my own thoughts. And this theory is that, this digital use, the apps, the social media is driving brain dysregulation. I say that because I've noticed it myself. My attention span is not what it used to be. I'm scattered. I'm distracted more. Um, I probably could diagnose myself with ADHD, but it was not like that before 2010, before I got my iPhone. So can you touch on that? Absolutely. So in fact, uh, we have a new um, PA a physician assistant that started working with us today and I'm you know, helping train her and she saw two patients this morning, <clears throat> um, both of whom had no history, both adults, you know, one was past the age of 40, I think a little bit, one was in her thirties. They both had never had any history of ADD and, you know, suddenly they're certain that they have ADD and they're, and each of them was like illustrates kind of what we're talking about. So kind of going back to my experience, I started working as an outpatient psychiatrist in 2010. So that's 12 years ago. That's that's four or five years after the iPhone comes out. I think the iPhone came out around 2005 or six, somewhere in there. So when I first started, I didn't see have that many patients coming to see me for AED. But without a doubt, every year, um, the number of people that come to see us who are convinced or believe or worried they have AED has been increasing more and more. So, you know, what's that about? Well, there's a book um, that just came out about three, four months ago. It's fantastic. I think your readers would love this book. It's called Stolen Focus. And it's written by Johan Hari. He's a journalist. He also wrote an excellent book called Chasing the Scream about, um, uh, the war against drugs, the war on drugs, and the problems with that. So he seems to have a, a special interest in you know brain topics and mental health. So this book, he 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 is is well researched, and he talks about all the harms of screen use, digital use, and how it impacts our ability to focus, how it impacts our ability to read literature. Um, reading is at an all time low among U.S. adults. People are not reading novels anymore people's attention spans become very, very short. And without a doubt, uh, technology has an impact. And he he does an excellent deep dive in this book about how this is true. Like I said, it's well-researched. And I mean, he unapologetically, you know, implicates companies like Facebook and Twitter and talks about how, you know, the, the, the um, you know, the engineers that design these algorithms and platforms, they design them in a way to make people more likely to stay connected to that device 
or stay connected to that social media platform. And what's more, you know, we live in an era of uh, social and political polarization. The technology is actually very, probably very responsible for a lot of our polarization. I mean, you could make a case about the media, maybe contributing to that too. But without a doubt, these algorithms drive people towards seeking more and more extreme content. Mm -hmm. um, in, other, in other words, the social media radicalizes people's thinking. So there's that, but there's also this aspect that you're so distracted, you're so focused on your phone. I mean, any one of us, I'm sure, can think of many examples in our own personal life or people we observe who you see, they're clearly not paying attention to things when they're walking out in public, uh, when they're at a restaurant and someone's trying to get their attention. I mean, whatever. Again, many, many examples of this you can see every single day across all age spans too. This could be teenagers to people in their 60s. Um, so I think I think people, it's time for people, and I'm glad he's he wrote a book like that because I think it's time for people to wake up and to disconnect from their devices and learn how to put like safer, um, you know, um, um, to put like safer boundaries around your social media use, your digital use. Like maybe you can use it some, but people should try to become more like cognizant and aware of like what they're doing and how it's affecting them and how it's like getting in the way of them connecting with other people. Um, I feel fortunate. I'm a Gen X person. I'm 48 years old. Um, it, it it was never difficult for me to not be interested in social media. It's It was never appealing for me personally, but I know many people in my generation, older and younger are, and I see it and, and it just, uh, it really concerns me. And I have young children, you know, both who are under the age of 10. And I think um, I don't want this to happen to them either. I want them to be playful and enjoy life and, you know, be children, but not be so connected to these devices. So long, I know it's kind of a long answer, but I, I do get pretty um, passionate about this because I think this is one of the biggest changes people could make that would quickly change their quality of life. I think they'd feel more focused, more fulfilled, more connected to people and sleep better. So that is one easy change. Now, Johan Hari says it's not easy to change the behavior. Maybe not, but it's it's one thing that people really could change or reduce that I think would have quick positive impact on their life and their brain health. Yeah. And I, I think the fact that, like you mentioned, these things are, are designed to hook us, to addict us, you know, to activate, what is it? Dopamine or serotonin on a level that, I mean, it's just happened so rapidly, especially for, and you're right. Maybe it's more of the, I mean, I'm, I'm on the edge of Gen X and millennial, but I think that in, what is it now? My, my oldest child is 18. Is it Gen, oh, Gen, Gen Z? Z? Yes. That's, that's the one that I'm like, okay, what is this doing to that age group? You know, I mean, how is this? They are so overly connected to everything that's happening in the world and identifying with everything that's happening in the world. And in some ways it's good to be empathetic and, and to see that. But I think in other ways, are they able to develop their own identity without that external influence? Yes. And, and, and I'm sorry, to close the loop on your question, I would say that, so all this obvious distraction that's apparent everywhere certainly is contributing to people feeling like, gosh, they're realizing I am distracted and I can't seem to get my work done in an efficient way. And, you know, and I see these ads <laughs> that appear on TikTok and on social media platforms, ironically, and these ads, you know, make me think, yeah, I, I am having trouble remembering my appointments. You know what? I might need Adderall. 
And so this is a big this is a big thing in our field in the in the sense it's really been the news lately in a good way that the Department of Justice is now investigating the company Cerebral. And mm-hmm. so Cerebral is this um, telemedicine company that that really exploded with growth during the pandemic. Um, many mental health providers got very busy during the pandemic because people are incredibly stressed, right? For mm-hmm. reasons we don't even need to address, it's obvious. Um, so Cerebral uh, realized very quickly that, oh, um, if we treat people for ADD, um, that's not, and it, I can tell you, it's not, it shouldn't be if you're doing it correctly. It's not terribly difficult to do. Um, and people generally like taking stimulants uh, you can give Adderall or Ritalin to most people and they're going to focus better, ADD or not, and they're going to have more energy. They might have a little boost of euphoria. So I wouldn't say that these people are intentionally trying to get high, right? But I would say these people you know, get this highly regulated controlled substance, which is an amphetamine, a form of, of an amphetamine, and with great abuse potential. And suddenly all these people are on these stimulants and they probably don't need to be. And those stimulants can make them more anxious and disrupt their sleep. They're not getting as good quality of sleep, which, you know, makes them more tired in the morning and then they need more Adderall and then they're anxious and then maybe they need Xanax for the anxiety. And it's just a terrible cycle. So I'm glad that Department of Justice in this case did investigate cerebral, um, which I believe is ongoing. I don't think there's an mm-hmm. outcome of that yet. But it was all over the newspapers a few months ago, and it it got us to say, you know, pay attention, like, you know, hey, we should be very careful in our evaluations for people that come in, you know, thinking they have ADD. Some certainly do, but many do not. And they need to be, I mean, they need to be enlightened, like, okay, why am I not focusing? And we need to ask questions like, hey, talk to me about your, um, you know, technology use. What's that like? We even have a screener in our clinic where we ask about digital use. It's about five open-ended questions I created that essentially say things like, how many hours of screen time do you estimate you use a day? Um, what social media platforms are you on? And it's, Aaron, it's fascinating what people it, admit to you to using. Many people are mm. on screens more than eight hours a day. Wow. Many people are on multiple social media platforms several hours a day. And I, my, the last question I asked them is, do you feel like you've kind of lost your ability to control your use? And if so, would you like to do something about it? 99% of the time people say yes. And yes, I've lost control and I need to do something about it. Oh, wow. That's huge. I mean, that is, it's interesting. Well, first of all, that you even have a screening for that, because I think that's so important. And I bet many people don't, but even, and I need to look up that investigation with cerebral because I was not aware of that. And that is fascinating as well. And I think that I've seen that because I'm a health coach. And so I've seen, you know, I have seen people say, well, I'm experiencing these symptoms. So I asked my doctor for Zoloft, Prozac, whatever it is, and they gave it to me. And which are, aren't we, you know, it's wonderful to live in a world where we have so many different solutions. However, I have seen the dark side of SSRI use and how not everybody responds well, you know, and how it can, in some cases, especially adolescents, it can make things worse. And so I am concerned about, again, the way that we can diagnose ourselves or over identify with different symptoms or labels or whatever, and then take it to somebody and say, well, this is what it is. And and how much that is, I, I mean, I don't know, that is an interesting, wow, to be part of that world. 
um, where we have so many options and yet it could be doing more harm than good in some cases. That's, that's tricky for sure. It is. I'm, I'm certainly an optimist. Um, I probably wouldn't do the work I do and I'm optimistic. Like we talked about Gen Z and I'm sure there's plenty of Gen, Gen Z people out there that, that say that's not true. I'm able to focus and I don't use that much, but, you know, by and large, the younger generations, um, you know, they grew up with this technology. So, um, it's, it's more present in their lives. But my optimistic hope is that, you know, things tend to come in cycles with generations, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of things in society. But I'm sort of hopeful that, you know, the Gen Z people, the Gen Z kids, um, maybe even millennials, they may have also grown up with parents who are on their phones and distracted all the time. And I'm kind of, you know, we think a lot about child development, brain development, and how that plays out when you're, with, when you're an adult. And so I'm, I'm admittedly, I'm not a child psychiatrist. I'm an adult psychiatrist, but I kind of wonder um, a lot of these kids um, growing up now with, if they happen to have parents that are using technology in an unhealthy way, um, kind of like growing up with parents that were smokers, mm-hmm. are those kids going to kind of like rebel against that and say, I don't want a phone. Phones are not cool anymore. Yeah. I don't want to be like mom and dad who are always glued to their phones and never like paying attention to me. You know, I don't want to be that kind of person. Again, it's an optimistic hope, but I'm hopeful that we might see that kind of cycle in a future younger generation at some point that again, people will kind of wake up to this. Yeah, I I like that. And that, I think that that takes a really positive spin on things. And that's true. I do with my, you know, one of my kids being Gen Z and being very much, (laughs) she's just like a typical Gen Z and where she is truly empathetic and sensitive and so connected to the world, but also has a lot of convictions. And I think that that can be a good thing. So yeah. So if it can be put to good use in that way, I think that's huge. Um, And you're right. I mean, parents are so distracted. It's like, let's take our pictures, you know, get, get the picture of the kids at the park and then back on the phone. Like we're not actually engaging with the kids at the park. That's a problem for sure. No, I mean, and so here I am, you know, proselytizing about, you know, how to responsibly use, um, you know, uh, cell phones and digital use and all that stuff. And certainly my, my wife and I, I mean, we, you know, we're not immune to this as well. I mean, w- as our kids were getting older, we've got our cell phones, we operate a business, we have many responsibilities yeah. and people will be texting us from time to time. And if we were having breakfast together in the morning, our phones might be out and we'll be looking at them and the kids are looking at us and my wife and I, you know, and talking about these, con- these concepts and ideas, we, we, you know, we came to a meeting of the minds at one point and said, you know, we have to say, if we believe this, we have to set the example as well, right? We can't just preach it, and not, not walk the walk. Like we have to show our kids that, you know, there, there might be a time to use your phone, but when we're sitting down together, eating and trying to be connected with you, this is not the time to be checking, you know, your email or whatever. Um, and, and so I think that's important for if, if parents, uh, especially are listening and think, yeah, like, how do I, how do I make sure my kids aren't like that? Or they're less prone to have these problems. I think it all comes out to how, how you, what kind of behaviors you model for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate you sharing your personal experience with that as well, because it, it, it's, yeah, as a business owner and and doing all of the things and needing to be on call. I mean, that's a lot. So I appreciate you putting that into perspective for us as well. So I do want to talk a little bit more about 
some of these other treatments um, that that you use at Roots that is a little bit different from the traditional psychiatry route. And I, and I also appreciate, you know, it's not a it's not an either or on anything. <laughs> I mean, your approach does it's a both and like we can't we can take medication and also employ some of these other healing modalities. So um, I'd love to hear more about what you found to be helpful for different people that you use. So no, uh, good question. Um, so I would say like we promote lots of lifestyle modifications people can make again, all with evidence that shows they're going to have a, like a net health benefit or a net brain benefit, like improving your diet, like, um, you know, incorporating exercise or some kind of body movement. So like to give you an example of someone comes in and they, they apparently like, it's obvious that they have depression. Um, we want to get an idea like how bad is that depression? How severe is it? And if it's mild, kind of moderate, uh, what we should be telling, what most psychiatrists should be telling their patients is, you know, if it's mild to moderate, you don't have to take a medication. Like, why don't you consider psychotherapy? Why don't you, you know, uh, if the provider is looking at, you know, all these tenants of holistic psychiatry, like we talked about, look and, you know, nine out of 10 people that walk in the door, some of those things you can easily address and say, you could do this, you could do this. These are things you could easily do in lieu of taking medications. So I just want to put that out there first. If a person's symptoms aren't terribly bad, um, they don't have to just jump on an SSRI right away, like Zoloft or Prozac. But too often people just you know prescribe it quickly without thinking more deeply about things they can do. Um, and antidepressants get a bad rap. I can talk a lot about that. Antidepressants certainly do plenty of good um, but they're overprescribed and people are probably kept on them for too long. That's another um, issue, mm. with them. but they do help many people and they do have good use for many, many people. So I don't want to undermine that idea. They're not, yeah. they're not all bad, but a apart from standard treatments like antidepressants, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, um, a few like innovative things we do again with evidence. Um, we're known for our ketamine program. Uh, we were, the first clinic in Texas to bring ketamine assisted psychotherapy to the state. There were ketamine infusion clinics treating depression um, back when we started our program in 2018, but we were the very first that ever did, you know, paired it with psychotherapy to treat mental health conditions, usually depression. So we've grown that program. Um, my wife and I, you know, enjoy talking at conferences about ketamine. We've done some research with ketamine in our clinic. We published the first observational cohort of uh, outpatient outcomes of ketamine with psychotherapy in partnership with two clinics in the Bay Area, some colleagues of ours. So ketamine is a great tool. It's not for everybody, but it's nice to have it. And it has great evidence for treating depression, PTSD, um, and to a lesser extent, actually some substance use conditions. Mm. And I say actually because ketamine itself is an abused substance by some people. It can be bought on the street. It can be snorted. It can be injected, but we only administer it in the clinic. Um, and if it's under medical supervision and the treatments are very infrequent, it's very hard to abuse ketamine when you're coming in the clinic in this manner. Yeah. Um, so we use ketamine. Um, we also, um, I wouldn't say a lot of people go for it because it's kind of expensive, but we can recommend Botox for depression. Mm -hmm. So there's five or six clinical trials, um, all of which were positive showing Botox has good evidence for benefit in treating depression. 
it works probably about 50% of the time, which wow. in our field is actually pretty good. And each antidepressant only works about 30% of the time right. for most people. So 50% of the time is pretty good. Yeah. Ketamine works Ketamine works about 60% of the time. So ketamine is wow. very effective. Um, and apart from those things and the lifestyle suggestions, um, and those are the big things we do. Um, we used to have a transcranial magnetic stimulation program. Mm -hmm. TMS. Yeah. TMS is FDA approved. It's effective. I certainly would recommend it. But we found that our outpatient population, for the most part, just wasn't that interested in signing up for it because it's a big time commitment. You have to do daily treatments five days a week for six weeks. Oh, and for wow. many people, it's just hard to set aside that kind of time, which I completely understand. But I, I would still validate the use of TMS and recommend it to our patients at facilities that just have TMS, um, like TM, a TMS service. So those are the big things aside from, you know, standard therapies that we use at Roots. Okay. Yeah. When I saw Botox for depression, I thought, surely that's not a thing. <laughs> that's surprising because I've heard about it, you know, for migraines. Um, but I, that's the first I've heard of it for depression. I think that's fascinating. And 50%, like you said, that is really significant. Um, I do want to talk about the ketamine because we've never talked about this before. So um, I, I would love to hear about the research that you've done, the research that's out there, how it's administered and um, who else? I mean, I know you mentioned depression, but it, can it be effective for anxiety? Can it be effective for bipolar? Like what, what are the other recommendations with ketamine? Yeah. So ketamine is a, it's FDA approved just for general anesthesia. So it's an anesthetic. It's still widely used in surgeries um, in the United States and across the world. Um, it was FDA approved in 1970, so it's been around mm -hmm. for 50 years, which is to say we know a lot about the medicine. We know a lot about um, how it works, how it affects people, its safety profile, which fortunately is very good and reassuring. It's not without risk, but it's actually quite safe for the most part. So FDA approved in 1970, and it wasn't until 2000, <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't until the year 2000 that Yale University did the first clinical trial with uh, IV infusions of low dose, so sub-anesthetic dosing of ketamine to treat depression. They took eight people who had treatment-resistant depression. They gave them one infusion of a half a milligram per kilogram of body weight. They infused it over 40 minutes. And what happened was all over the news. This was like remarkable, two hours, meaning their depression significantly improved in less than two or three days. And the benefit lasted about a week. So between 2000 and now, there's been hundreds, possibly thousands of studies on ketamine for mood. And what we know from that research is we know that um, the dosing range that's effective is that 0.5 milligram per kilogram. A lot of clinics will take it up to about one, one and a half milligrams per kilogram. So we know an effective dose to treat depression. We know that two treatments per week for about three weeks is the optimal way to get the depression under control. So most people are gonna do about six treatments. By the end of that six treatments, if they are if they have not responded, response, mean, response is like a clinical term. That means whatever depression rating scale we're using to objectively you know, gauge the severity of a person's symptoms, if that scale has reduced by at least 50%, that's considered a response. And that's significant. That means the person's likely feeling much, much better. Okay. I wouldn't say they're cured, but like it worked, like it was very effective to alleviate their depression. So 
if if by the end of those six treatments, if they've responded, then they move on to maintenance. And maintenance for most people is they're getting one ketamine infusion, IV, or injection. We can also do an intramuscular injection in the shoulder muscle or the deltoid muscle. And they're going to do that uh, maintenance treatment about once a month. Everyone, you know, people are very, you know, heterogeneous, obviously. Some people will do maintenance every three weeks. There are some people that do maintenance every six to eight weeks. Mm. And back to the brain health idea, um, I think if people optimize their brain health during this process, eat better foods, start exercising, whatever they can do to improve it, their ketamine maintenance will be less frequent. And what's more, and we've seen this, if they really take it seriously and like really give it all to improve their brain health, they may get to a point after several months where they no longer need ketamine. And then mm. they, if they get a future episode of depression, okay, then they could repeat the cycle for you know a couple of months possibly, but they may not need to do it long-term. So most of the evidence for ketamine is in treating depression. It's also been shown to be safe and effective, actually probably a bit more effective for bipolar depression. Oh, wow. The caveat about that is for patients with bipolar, type one or type two, um, they probably should take a first line mood stabilizer while they're getting ketamine, you know, like lithium mm -hmm. or like valproate or lamictal, things like that. Because if they don't, ketamine could theoretically cause the mood to cycle. It could mm -hmm. possibly go into a manic or hypomanic episode. Yeah. And I've seen that a couple of times. Um, it's been short lived, but you know, you don't want to make people feel like they're out of control in their mind or unstable. Right. Um, but bottom line, it is safe and effective for bipolar depression. Um, there's now pretty good evidence it's effective for PTSD. And I say mm -hmm. evidence as in like, like good academic centers doing, you know, randomized clinical trials showing it works. Uh, Mount Sinai did a good study about two years ago with PTSD and they combined it with group therapy and they had phenomenal outcomes. Um, I couldn't quote you all the stats, but it was a positive study. And it showed that it was effective for PTSD. We've delivered in the last four years, over 4,000 ketamine treatments. And like our, in our own clinical experience, without a doubt, it certainly works very well for PTSD and trauma. So I'd say it works well for depression, PTSD and trauma. And there's a few studies out of Columbia University showing that it looks like with psychotherapy, it's pretty effective for certain substance use disorders. Uh, Columbia found positive results for alcohol use disorder, uh, methamphetamine use disorder, oh. and a different university had a positive study for um, opiate use disorder. So kind of, in my mind, turning the model on the head about treating substance use disorder. In other words, we're taking a controlled substance and we're getting people sober <laughs> and maintaining sobriety with a controlled substance. The catch is, those people have to have the mindset that they want to get sober and they want to change their lives. Mindset is extremely important with ketamine. If you don't have the right mindset, it may not work as well. Wow. That's interesting. So how is it actually, cause you know, we're talking about say SSRIs. I think that's when most people commonly understand the best, you know, that it's going to keep the serotonin in the synapses longer, may, supposedly makes you feel better for certain people works pretty well. Some people, maybe it doesn't in the short term, but ketamine. So what is this doing? Is this acting on a neurotransmitter level and a brain body level? Like what's it doing? Yeah. So if you don't mind uh, me answering by talking about SSRIs just for a second to contrast. Yeah. So SSRIs and SNRIs. So SSRIs mm -hmm. are selective serotonin 
you know, reuptake inhibitors. The theory is they boost serotonin. And SNRIs, the, the theory behind them is they boost serotonin and norepinephrine. Mm. And these are neurotransmitters implicated in, uh, you know, the cause of depression, maybe anxiety problems. Well, there's several studies that have debunked this idea mm. and called into question, is depression and anxiety really caused by this chemical imbalance? Um, people that are kind of on the cutting edge of this research seem to feel like, you know, probably not, that SSRIs are effective, but they're not effective for the reason we think they are. Many people think they might be effective because they actually have a net result of reducing inflammation. And brain inflammation does seem to be implicated mm -hmm. in many people's chronic mood conditions, especially depression, probably OCD, and maybe to some extent, some kinds of uh, anxiety conditions. Okay, so that's SSRIs, SNRIs. So along comes ketamine. Ketamine does not work with the monoamine neurotransmitters at all. The monoamines are serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine. Ketamine has negligible effects on those neurotransmitter systems. Instead, it blocks a receptor in our brain called an NMDA receptor. So N-methyl-D-aspartate oh. receptor. So it blocks that receptor on, I'm getting a little technical here, but it blocks that receptor on um, neurons in our brain called GABA interneurons. And these neurons are supposed to inhibit things, stop things from happening, right? So, so ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist. So it blocks this receptor. And the ultimate net effect is it leads to a surge of an increased flow of glutamate. So glutamate's a different type of neurotransmitter. And there are all, and that sets off a chain of all these downstream effects. And so here's the take-home idea that, that you and your listeners will appreciate. These downstream effects lead to our brains increasing BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Okay, what does BDNF do? BDNF, in this case, leads to synaptogenesis. So our neurons, our brain cells are all linked. They're all communicating with one another. I mean, those, those communications are allowing me to like hear you and for like me to be speaking these words right now, right? The brain is making that happen. Well, if a person experiences chronic depression, chronic stress, those synapses don't work so well. Um, the endpoint connections where they communicate with one another, they atrophy, which means they kind of shrink, they shrivel, they're sick. Like they're basically ill. The brain cells are getting ill or, you know, becoming sick, chronically ill. And so ketamine has the net effect of reforming connections between these neurons, making these synapses stronger, essentially making your brain work better. And in a way you might say possibly healing the effects of chronic stress and depression for some or most people that take it. And that is groundbreaking, right? Like nothing mm -hmm. in our field we've ever done or prescribed before has ever had that effect. Um, now, there's a couple of things since, you know, we like talking about holistic stuff. There's a couple of things that do naturally boost BDNF that people can do. And it's shown to work. It just takes some dedication. One is exercise, particularly cardiovascular exercise. And you don't got to be like training for a marathon. You just got to get your heart rate up the other thing is meditation. Almost any type of meditation practice, if it's consistent, it will lead to an uptake of BDNF. People that meditate regularly, you know, it's kind of a stereotype. It's true. Like they're pretty relaxed, chill people. They are not very stressed, <clears throat> right? They may have started their meditation practice because they were overwhelmed or stressed, but if they stick with it, undeniably, you get calmer, you get more focused. 
And, you know, on the cellular level, your brain synapses are probably working better in some regard, not that different from ketamine. So ketamine is a great way to like jumpstart the process to healing, but ultimately people need to, I mean, if they don't want to just rely on a medication, even ketamine, you know, they want to take their health into their own hands and try to incorporate things that are going to help improve that brain health, like the meditation or exercise. Oh, I'm so excited that you mentioned BDNF because I love talking about that. And I, cause it is something that's important. There's a lot of things out there that I just did not know growing up. And I wish I had, you know, can't go back, whatever, but um, all of these things that you're mentioning are groundbreaking and are such needed tools to create mental stability, mental healing for so many people. So I appreciate you breaking down even how ketamine works at, at the brain level, because I think that's something that I've, it just sounds like this great idea, but what is it doing? <laughs> you know? So I appreciate that. Oh, okay. Well, we are at the end and I'm, I can't believe how this flew by. I could ask you a thousand other questions. Um, but I will ask my favorite question. The name of the show is sparking wholeness. So if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? It'd be turn off your phone. I mean, turn off your phone, turn off your phone, wake up to the idea that your phone or your device is probably is probably in, interfering more with your life than you realize. And if you could just take some simple steps to limit that use and try to be mindful of it, I promise you, you will feel better. You'll feel more human again. You'll feel more connected to the people in your lives. You'll sleep better. You'll focus better. And you'll do all that without taking a pill. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. And a good reminder for me <laughs> as, as I go pick up my kids from school soon um, to put it away. So thank you for that. And where can people, you know, what's your website and where can people learn more about your work? And um, you know, I'm, I'm in Texas. And so I'd love to be able to refer more people to you. No, thank you. Uh, yeah. We're, we're uh, roots behavioral health. So our website is just rootsbehavioralhealth.com. So like, <clears throat> excuse me, roots as in roots in the ground. Um, rootsbehavioralhealth.com. That's our website. And there's plenty of information about kind of our holistic model, the, the basic tenets of it on the website. And it kind of clues people into like our practice philosophy. And um, yeah, we're all about it. I'm, I'm happy to work with people that, you know, want to be healthier and want advice on what they can do, um, you know, just to feel better. And you see um, patients virtually as well? We do. I mean, <clears throat> yes. Yeah, so we, um, our business model is predicated on taking commercial insurance. Like that's a value to me and my wife, Andrea, who's a social worker. She's our executive director. We wanted to make psychiatric care as affordable and accessible as possible. And all the major insurance companies for the most part are still covering telemedicine visits. It appears that'll probably be permanent. Uh, who knows if they'll make some restrictions or limits on it at some point, but because of that convenience, a majority of our patients still see us through telemedicine. I think for most people that works well. I like seeing people in person, but it's certainly like undeniably convenient and practical for most people to use telemedicine. So yes, we offer both in-person and telemedicine. Right. Well, that's, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time and um, your knowledge and your information and would love to do a part two at some point in the future, because this is so informative. So thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Aaron. And yes, uh, I can keep talking for a long time. So I'm happy to come back for a part two. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. 
Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.